Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Would you consider yourselves good with money? I don't have that much money, so I guess it's hard to be bad with it when you have limited. I think I'm pretty good with money because I have managed my own finances from a young age, so I think I'm pretty like vigilant about my spending and have a good handle on where my finances are at. I can definitely be better with money. Um, savings was not something that I was doing on a regular schedule, and I'm learning that it's important to do that now. I would say that I'm all right with money. I think I was taught from a very young age on how to manage my money, um, but mostly in a way of almost stuffing money in the mattress. And so I definitely think that I could be better at investing, especially because there's such a big gap between men and women in terms of taking risks. So there's a big wealth gap there. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. And shout out to our new family tuning in from Houston Public Media. Glad to have you in the conversation. Berna Annette is both deeply skeptical of capitalism and dedicated to helping people thrive within it, particularly people who come from backgrounds like her own. Berna, like me, and maybe like you too, grew up in a home in which money only really came up when it was a problem. She didn't think much about it until she looked up as a young woman and found herself deeply in debt with no idea how she got there or how she'd get out of it. And when she sought help, what she found was an invitation to feel ashamed of herself. But for Berna, that became a provocation. She battled her shame by getting on social media and talking about money as openly and frankly as possible, and in a way that would be accessible to people like herself, to a first-generation Filipina-American who grew up well outside of the financial system. Roughly a decade later, she is now the author of the book Money Out Loud, All the Financial Stuff No One Taught Us, and a self-described financial hype woman Tens of thousands of followers on platforms all over the internet turn to her for help and inspiration. And in this moment of ongoing economic anxiety, we are going to do the same on this week's show. Berna, thanks so much for coming on Notes for America. Thank you so much for having me, Kai. That was such a beautiful, it was so thorough. I feel like all I need to do now is like interpretive dance. So okay, well, I mean, well, well, we'll see what we can do. Well, I should say the name of my radio program correctly. First off, notes from America. <laughs> so we're <laughs> off to a great start. Uh, all right, so so you emphasize that your own story with money very much begins with being Filipina. How'd mm-hmm. you grow up and and why do you, and how did that impact the way you think about money? Sure, so as you so beautifully said, again, thank you for having me and for that 
gorgeous intro. I am a first and foremost first-gen Filipina-American daughter of immigrants, born and raised in the Bay Area. And I did not make the connection about that plus my money for a very, very long time. But now, looking back on it, like looking back on it, the first-gen experience is so interesting and specific when it comes to money because you have one foot in the money brains of, you know, your home country, the people who brought you here and raised you here, and then another foot in Americanness and the American dream and individualism and bootstraps. And so I found myself very confused, you know, in my family and lots of other Filipino-American families, it's there is no conversation about money. The only conversation about money is shame or not having enough of it or be quiet because we can't afford that. And actually, there's this deeply unscientific theory that I talk about in my book. Do you mind if I share, Kai? Please, please. I call it the frugal flex theory. <laughs> and this is something <laughs> that I discovered in talking to other first-gen, specifically Filipino-American folks. We grow up confused about money because we're ping-ponging between two extreme sides of a spectrum. On any given day, either your family's frugal with money or you're flexing with the money. Mm. So maybe in the morning, your mom's, you know, it's it's that whole, like, we have rice at home. You know, do you have McDonald's money? I don't care that your friend has the newest Jordans. Go live with them then. <laughs> like, you know, it's, we're bringing food and Tupperware to the to the movie theater. It's just, it's, it's frugal to the point of, like, almost embarrassment. Mm -hmm. And then you can go to, like, a family party that night. And then, you know, my mom's decked out in, like, the best brand names that she has. So are all my aunties, even though I know they all have the same job. <laughs> and they're, you know, talking so much about what each other can afford and who posted that bag on Facebook and who's going to Santorini again for vacation. And then we're, they're fighting over the bill. What? Four hours ago, we were just talking about how broke we are. And so I think that right there encapsulates, like, the confusion that I grew up in, that a lot of us grew up in. And so... It's no surprise that we get to adulthood and we're like, what? <laughs> what? And you talked about the the flex part you've talked about. Some of that is about like proving a level of Americanness. What What is the relationship you think in your family, at least, and in other second gen families stories between like that flex and like, oh, wait, I'm going to show you I'm American enough. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly it. It's like using the money to show one, that you're American enough and two, that your sacrifice towards the American dream was worth it. Um, I tell a story in the book, this is not spoiling too much, hopefully, but my mom loves to tell the story about televisions and TVs. When she was growing up in Davao and Mindanao, she was in the province, single mother, six brothers. There was one guy in their province, in their neighborhood, who got a TV. And it was this huge deal because he like made a big show out walking it into the house and everything. And my family saw, like my my aunt, my my uncles and my mom found that the guy left his window open when he would watch tv so they'd like perch at the window all of them like all the neighborhood kids would perch at the window and watch whatever he was watching without sound and he found out one day and he kept the windows closed he just shut the windows on Ooh. them right hater and so i don't think there was closed captions at the time so like it's not like they were getting much out of it anyway my mom got so mad and so embarrassed and she always reflects on this moment and she's like i decided right then and there that i'm gonna go to america mm. and i'm gonna buy me a big house and i'm gonna put a tv in every single room and then you know she's telling me telling this story over and over throughout the years one year i realized i was like 
she damn near did put a TV in every room <laughs> of this house. Not to say, though, that we grew up with TVs everywhere. A lot of them were with the bootleg, Goodwill, right, right, Channel right. 3, just there to play the VCR of our, like, recorded, you know, Disney movies. Mm -hmm. But that really made me connect the dots of, like, money is used to create status, to flex to other folks, not just that, like, oh, I'm fancy and I'm great, but, like, I made a major sacrifice to come here. I have financial trauma that brought me here. I brought that trauma with me. And now you're seeing it sort of play out in terms of things that people can see. It's almost like my mom needed to use money to make up for that traumatic moment and to like, heal something that uh, she'd been carrying with her for so many years. So all of that is part of the beginning of your money story, which is the phrase you use. We all have a money story. Uh, and your story takes a big turn when you find yourself $50,000 in debt as a young woman. How old were you were then, by the way, when, when you had this much debt? Oh, goodness. When when I sort of became conscious to it and yeah. sort of like peeked my head up out of the wall, I was probably around 24, 24-ish. Uh-huh. And I was living in New York City. I was a freelance writer, which means I was like violently broke yep. and um, had been living for a few years in New York City, but just sort of surfing in that weird wave of like dark we don't talk about itness even with my friends you know we're all we're all broke to the same degree but no one's really admitting it and um there was a moment around when i was like 20 24 25 or that i was like oh this is bad this doesn't feel good it's heavy yeah yeah and so then what did you do you went you went looking for help what you where'd you look and what did you find so I went looking for help because I ended up moving out of New York City back home and I got a new job. And this job was, you know, I was freelance before. And so I was so inspired financially because I was getting a paycheck every other Friday. <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. Like, it's just like, it's just going to come uh -huh. if I just like do a decent job. This is uh -huh. wild. And for me, that was a moment of just like, all right. So the financial gods are saying, Berna, like, you don't have a, you don't have an excuse anymore. Like, get your stuff together. This is consistent. So of course, like any other millennial, uh, doesn't know what they're doing. I had no kind of financial education growing up, neither did my parents. I turned to the University of Google. I was like, let me get my Google on. And you know that meme of like, very old meme of like a cat, like banging on a keyboard with <laughs> yeah. its paws. That's how I felt when I was like, how to budget? What is interest rate? And what I found there, as I like to say, uh, all the blogs and podcast people, like, you have to read this book. You got to follow this dude. This guy's a genius. Blah, blah, blah. Everyone in the field was hella male, hella pale, hella stale. Mm. And that that just kind of broke the fourth wall for me. I was like, I'm just trying to learn about money. Why is it all one specific type of person teaching me about money? And if you really read into it, they're speaking from their experiences, their lifestyles, which are totally different from mine. It's like it's like a different language entirely. So that really inspired me to like look not just into my own financial education, but like the financial education world in general. Right, right. Okay, well, listeners, this is the the beginning of Berna's story, Berna's money story, <laughs> and she and I both want to hear yours as well. What is something you once thought about money that you had to unlearn? How'd you unlearn it? And where'd it come from in the first place? Tell us your money story. And Berna, help us cue this up a little bit here. In the first chapter of your book, you write uh, a message directly to the readers. Uh, it says, everyone, including you, has a money story worth sharing. And that story has nothing to do with how much money you do or you do not have. So mm -hmm. in the like minute we've got before we've got to go to break, uh, 
What does that mean and why do you want to hear these stories? This is incredibly important to me because people come to me all the time and the first thing they say to me is, Berna, I'm sorry, I'm just so bad at money. I suck at money as if it's something that was genetic, like they popped out the womb being bad at money, which is simply not true. There is so much you're actually coming to the table with that might not be like hot budgeting tips, but it's financial baggage, trauma, it's experiences that sort of illustrate how you became the financial human you are now. If you don't understand where you came from, it's going to be hard to get wherever you're going. So we got to unpack it. It's hard, but we have to unpack it. But we have got to get into it. All right. Well, listeners, it is time to unpack it. We'll take your calls after a break and talk more with Berna Annette, author of Money Out Loud, all the financial stuff no one taught us. Stay with us. Hey everyone, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. I want to ask for your help on an upcoming episode. Notes from America is partnering with KOSU, that's Oklahoma Public Radio. We're making an episode about reparations for survivors of the Federal Indian Boarding School Program. And we'd love to hear from our listeners in the Native community about your own experiences and perspectives. Specifically, here's what we'd like to know from you. Do you think the federal government should provide reparations? If so, what would those reparations look like for you, and how should they happen? Would it be directly paying survivors for the harm, or would it be more investment in Native education? And if not, what do you think would best serve this community right now? We'd love to get a voicemail from you. You can record it right on our website. Just visit notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button on the website that says Start Recording. You can also record yourself on your phone and email us. Our email address is notes at wnyc.org. However you talk to us, we hope to hear from you and potentially to use your message in this upcoming episode. Thanks as always and talk to you soon. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking with Berna Annette, author of the book Money Out Loud, all the financial stuff no one taught us. And a self-described financial hype woman for people who have lived outside of the financial system and have suffered as a result. Berna has been telling us her money story, as she calls it, and we want to hear yours too. What's something you once thought about money that you had to unlearn? How'd you unlearn it? And where'd it come from in the first place? What's the backstory to that? Uh, and Berna, before we take some calls, uh, you talk a lot about shame 
um, in your book and in your work. Um, that's the emotion you felt when you went looking for help uh, with your debt. You found all you found everybody that wanted to give advice was hella male, hella pale, and hella stale. But you also found that you ended up feeling ashamed. D- describe your own experience with the shame and, and like why it mattered or how it mattered for you. Oh yeah. So I think shame is one of the first things we learn about money as kids. There's this really wild. I believe it's University of Cambridge study that showed that people kind of solidify their like mental financial foundation between the ages of seven and nine, which is bonkers town to me because like, who? I mean, who is like looking at budgeting, you know, worksheets and flashcards when they're eight years old? Nobody. I think a lot of us, when we look back at our money stories, as I say, what we're learning between the ages of seven and nine are like context clues and the feeling of money with our caretakers in our homes. For a lot of us, again, first-gen folks, where it's it's almost explicitly told, if not straight to your face, then it's sort of like in the, it's like in the home, in the air, that we don't talk about money. We definitely never, ever, ever talk about our money problems with anybody outside of the house. And then you grow up and you get into sort of like financial media, you're, you're learning things from social media, you're learning things from your family, from your friends. Debt has such shame to it as well. When it's taught to us, when it's sold to us, when it's talked about, it's like, oh, that person has a bunch of debt. That person has taken out a lot of loans. Like, oh, student loan debt. All of it is spoken with this heaviness and this sort of fear. And so we learn shame as like our very first financial lesson. I also remember, okay, Kai, did you ever get into like, do you remember like the Scholastic Book Fairs? Mm -hmm. That situation, right? Like when you, you... if for anyone who's never been to a scholastic book fair, it was like second or third or fourth grade. And the like scholastic would come and you're supposed to like pre-order books and pick them up. It's uh-huh. like this little bookstore that comes to your school. I'm realizing in all these conversations I have with folks, that's one of the first places that we learn financial shame because you know there are some people who are like have great memories of the scholastic book fair because right. they bought up all the things. And a lot of people who are like, yeah, that's when I realized I have less than my classmates. I can't participate in this. I can't. I'm that kid sitting in the corner and they hand me like a paper bookmark. I have to watch my my friends walk off with like handfuls of books. So it's these small experiences that like wedge themselves in our financial brain as adults. And then we grow up, we take on debt for so many different circumstantial reasons that have nothing to do with like our personality or how good of people we are. But then the narrative about debt and shame continues into our adulthood, especially because like, especially for millennials, I feel like we're sort of sold this crappy bill of goods that, yeah, get into student loan debt. That's fine. Sign your life away at 17 because when you graduate, you'll be fine. You'll pay that stuff off. So now all of us aging millennials are also carrying that extra like, I never got rid of my student loan debt. I was supposed to. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk about how I'm like five, six figures in. There's just, it's a heaviness that we all carry but we're carrying it secretly, which mm. makes it even heavier. Mm-hmm. We're going to come back to that, this shame idea a little more later. I, let's let's take a couple calls. Michael in Franklin Park, Illinois. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for calling in. What's your what's your money story, Michael? So essentially, um, I like I empathize so much with uh, with you guys. With um, um, I'm sorry, I'm so bad with names. Burn but uh, as I'm listening, yeah, as I'm listening, it's like I cannot stop laughing because. Uh, my mom's from Argentina, and she came in tow with my three older siblings with no money. And her thing was work, 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 you know, save to a degree. 
um, not show out. Again, don't have McDonald's money, don't have mm. money for this, that, and the other. And that's how my brothers described it. But growing up, um, I have a separate father from my my other siblings, and I didn't grow up with a dad. So we'll just mean her for the most of my life. And essentially, she was working for a long time as a bartender, making really good money, honestly. But because she made really good money on the weekends, and I was essentially the only son at the point, we, like she, like, uh, she said before, she'd fall out, essentially, any toy I wanted, anything I wanted. Mm-hmm. But never did we ever talk about her finances. Never did we talk about saving. Yes, college was the idea, because she didn't want me to work. But I got sold the idea, the same thing, about, you know, college is her best bet, this, that, and the other. So by the time I was 18 to go to college, it scared the living hell out of me. I didn't want to get mm-hmm. a bunch of debt. Um, my brother being nine years older than me, his colleagues, same deal, making good money. But if you owe $200,000 and making 80K, are you really making good money? Uh, it's debatable. Oh, um, so what I decided to do was I said, let me take a break and I'll work. And that break became a 10 year break. And I've been just jumping back from job to job. And only recently have I even come across to have an idea of like putting away money. You know, I've got mm-hmm. thankful enough to meet a girlfriend who's really frugal <laughs> with her money and really smart with her decisions. So she's been keeping me in check, but it's just so hard. I'm going to stop you, Michael. It's it's nice to meet a girlfriend that'll help you out. Berna, you were doing a lot of night nodding to Michael's story. You want to react before we take another call? Yes, Michael. I'm sorry you can't see me, but I'm just I'm basically in church. I'm just like, mm, yep, I know that song. I know that song lyrics part of my song too. That whole like bill of goods thing. I'm just like we're told to bust your butt to get into the best possible college. A lot of the times that's a very expensive college. And then we're thrown into adulthood with no instructions on how to make up for it, how to pay off the debt. It's all of this confusion, all of these different factors at play. And ultimately you end up beating yourself up. And so hopefully, Michael, you found a place or your girlfriend maybe has helped you find a place where there's a little more financial empathy for yourself, for your mom and for your situation because you you, you must have done great. You're here. Here you are. Here you are. Let's go to Marie in Hartford, Connecticut. Marie, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Um, my story is um, I was raised in a Protestant church. My my father was a minister, and this did not come from my family, but somehow I got it in my head that money was evil. Mm. And I, I, I was blessed that I was able to go to school, didn't have undergrad debt. Um, I was lucky that I got into an institution that for many years I had um, it, a good insurance and good retirement plan. Um, so what happened over the years is I did my best not to earn money and to give it away. And, uh, when I went back to school at the grad level, I really got myself in debt and now I'm learning, well, we're just going to do this the old fashioned way and just try to get rid of the credit cards, get rid of the debt. And, uh, I'm lucky that I have a husband and we have a home and we're, you know, that gives us some security, but the insurance out there these days, uh, it's not good. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, the younger right. kids have less benefit from the American dream, but I'm feeling a taste of it now. Can I you ask know, you, Marie, that, when you said you, you learned that money was evil, um, and, um, which on some level is a good, is a thing where some of us want to value, right? Like we, we don't want to be obsessed with money. Um, how did that, like translate into your, it, what did that, how did that translate into action for you? Well, what did that do it, for what you? that meant was, you know, it took me a long time to think, wow, 
Marie, you could have gone into a different field, made a lot more money and helped more people. So what I looked at was that my the field I was always going to be in would be social service or human services. And uh, but, a, you know, it was it was something that was in my mind since I was a little mm-hmm. child. And you say the lady was saying nine to 11 years old. You know, I was in church twice a week, and I was really buying that gospel, which, you know, I still believe in. But um, I think as a little kid, I interpreted it maybe the wrong way, and we didn't discuss money in our house. I don't know if I answered your question. You did. Thank you, Marie. Uh, somebody on uh, YouTube says, the you know, says thanks for that scholastic book sale story. Uh, it really resonated. Uh, my kids have no idea. For me, it's hard to buy things at these school events. It's the I turned out okay without it story. Um, what Marie was saying resonated for me, Berna, as somebody who was um, raised to devalue money. Like money wasn't something we were taught to pursue. And I think that's a good thing. I count that as a blessing um, mm-hmm. that I was not taught to obsess over money. I was taught to obsess over education instead. But at mm-hmm. the same time, <laughs> that left me totally ill-equipped um, <laughs> uh, to participate in a world that is ruled by money. And I guess I want to hear you wrestle a little bit with this tension between as somebody mm-hmm. who uh, critiques a lot about the way in which money shows up in our society and the way in which our financial system works and mm-hmm. someone who is saying, you got to learn about money. How do you, how do you think about those two things together? I think this is, this tension is exactly what keeps me in the game because if it were as simple as, listen, money is X, Y, Z, you need to, to do X, Y, Z with it. That's at the end of the day. Like it would be a much less interesting industry to be in. But the thing is, we were all born into this circus called capitalism and we had no choice. <laughs> the The rules were set before we got here, way before we got here. And the unfortunate rule and probably the number one rule of this crappy game is that money equals power. Money is the language of power inside of capitalism. We've seen it so many times in the last 10 years with boycotts and you know layoffs and things like that, when you mess with the folks in power's wallet, that's when they pay attention, right? That's how you know that money is the language of power mm. in this world. This is why it's so incredibly important for me to help others feel more empowered with their money because a lot of the times, like this is what we have to access health, safety, comfort, uh, you know, medicine, shelter. Unfortunately, this thing that someone decided once upon a time would be the currency of our life really kind of determines our survival. And what's really effed up is, especially for marginalized folks, our access to money is so disadvantaged, is so cut off, not because we're bad at it or because we can't handle our debt, but because it is it is designed within the system of capitalism that somebody gets shat on, that somebody oh, gets their foot. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Whoopsies. Somebody, somebody get home, beep doop. And they, you know, it, it's basically the design of the system that those in power have to have their foots on the necks of folks without power. Oh, oh. And what I'm trying to do in my small corner of the internet is that if we have a little bit more of a handle on how money works, how the truly poopy rules of the system works, then we can hopefully get our heads above water a tiny bit. So many of us, even in the money stories we were just talking about, all we know about money is survival. All we know about money is paycheck to paycheck. And we can't dream of a new world. We can't redesign systems when we're just like in survival mode all the time. Mm. So that's what I'm hoping. I'm trying to help with that. Okay. 
Let's go to Raj in Rochester, Minnesota. Raj, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I am uh, basically first gen uh, uh, from uh, India. So our uh, uh, concept of debt uh, and money is entirely different. Uh, when I came here, uh, the way we were taught is uh, you buy the stuff or whatever you want only if you can afford it. So uh, we were always uh, discouraged to go to a bank for a loan or anything. So if you want to buy anything, then uh, we need to pay everything uh, with cash. Mm-hmm. So basically what happened was my first car, uh, when I went to the bank, I was offered the loan, uh, everything. Uh, but because of my belief or uh, the cultural uh, upbringing, uh, I never took the loan. I paid uh, with cash my first mm-hmm. car. And then slowly as I got integrated into the system, then I realized uh, the value of debt. And now uh, for everything, I do purchase with uh, loans, the car, the houses, the rental properties, all the investments and everything. So that was a big cultural difference uh, from coming from back from India. Thank you for that, Raj. And this is something I have to say, like I have struggled with in my life because it's one of those things. It's like you are taught um, that you're a bad person for having debt. Um, And uh, so many of our political conversations uh, revolve around poor people, people of color who have too much debt and that we've been irresponsible as a consequence. And yet so much of the financial system is based on having and leveraging debt. <laughs> um, and I, so help me understand this uh, this hypocrisy. This is this is the weird thing about uh, debt and the way that we talk about that in the financial education system. It's shame everywhere. It's you shouldn't have it. You got to get rid of it as soon as possible. But I think the real sort of rub here is that debt is necessary for so many folks, especially marginalized folks. Like Raj was saying, when you're immigrant family first gen, there are things that you need to survive in the system and you might not necessarily have the cash flow to get there or to do it. You might need to lean on debt to pay a medical bill. You might need to lean on debt to get a car to go to work or to access secondary education or access food and shelter. Debt is a tool for survival in the game of capitalism that was set up for you to fail. It's like one of the only things we could use to hop and skip and jump and get a Mario mushroom and survive for however long it takes. And that's the part that makes me really nuts about shaming ourselves for debt or all the shame about debt in our society when debt actually, like without debt, I wouldn't be sitting here talking with you. Mm. Without debt, I would have never gotten to college. Without debt, my parents wouldn't wouldn't have been able to raise me and my brothers. And so... I really want to try as as much as possible to neutralize the idea of debt. It's a tool. It's something we should be, we should approach with better information. And uh, I think I'm just as confused as you are, Kai, of right. just the like, so why right. are we shaming when we need it so bad? Why are we shaming when literally debt is like the, the hinges on the door of capitalism? It's like how everything works and how everything thrives. It's garbage. And on this, again, on this shame point, as we start to wrap up, you know, what... Um you you talk so powerfully about it and like the way it makes us vulnerable. And you've also mm. talked about like that we're, that it has a political utility. Um, uh, say, say more about that. Oh, just money in general as a political utility is my favorite thing. 
in terms of debt specifically? Shame, shame, the shame that we are meant to feel um, around money and not having it. And, and not yes. understand. I, I'm prompting you to talk about, I've heard you talk about the way in which like it keeps us ignorant. And, oh, and, yes. and, and then our ignorance is, then makes us vulnerable. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly it. So basically, it's much easier to control a population when they are in debt, when they don't know what's going on, and especially when they're quiet about their debt and their shame. When we don't talk to each other, we don't discover that other people have the same problems as us. We don't ask questions as to why so many of us who are in the same marginalized communities have the same problems. And then we don't rise up and try to change these systems. And that's why I call the book Money Out Loud, because the more noise we make, the more powerful we can be. We got to leave it there. Berna Annette is author of Money Out Loud, all the financial stuff no one taught us. You can find her all over the internet at the handle Hey Berna. Thanks for this time, Berna. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Mixing and theme music by Jared Paul. Matthew Miranda was our live engineer this week. Our team also includes Karen Frillman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kushina Vidar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for spending time with us. Thank you.